Do you want to come find a seat? That would be fantastic. Great to have you with us all today. Hope you're having a good time with us this morning. Now, what we're going to do is we are in our series on the book of Hebrews. We've actually only got two weeks left. We've gone through the entire book, covering it all. Uh, We've got this week, we've got next week where we'll wrap it up. We'll land the plane, final chapter 13. And then after that, it's on to Mother's Day. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to the book of Hebrews. We're at the back end of chapter 12 uh, this morning. And I'll read it to you in just a moment. Before we get into that, I just want you to... Think outside church. I don't know if you've ever been to the theatre and kind of watched shows in the theatre. My wife and I, we've done it a few times in our married life and we enjoy it as an experience. It's a very different dynamic to going to watch um, a movie. And we did it a few years ago where we went to London, we had some time and uh, we bought some tickets to go and see The Lion King on stage in London in the West End and it was kind of a big thing and we got some tickets and said we want to go. We'd seen the film a number of times so you're kind of familiar with the stories, we know the songs, you know the words, you know all the kind of visuals but then you're going to go and see the stage show of that and I was excited to go and we went there and we got our seats and we settled in but then it kind of hit me as I was watching you thinking how are they going to do this because if you've seen The Lion King it's all animals. The whole thing is kind of animals talking and singing and dancing and doing whatever they do. And you think, how are they going to represent that on a show? But you know it's the West End, you know it's going to be good. And everyone said all these reviews, oh, it's really good, amazing. So we turn up and I was absolutely stunned by it. If you've ever seen it at the stage, if you have the opportunity to go, go watch it. It's brilliant. Because the choreography on the stage and the, the outfits that they wear and the way they perform, it's like they bring it to life. Especially the opening number, the circle of like, it's the circle of life. You know, and this. And they all bow down, and you've got the, suddenly the giraffes come along the back. You think, there can't be giraffes in here, seriously. We're in the theatre in the West End. But these guys on stilts, and the animals come in, and then the elephants, and the monkeys, and the lions. And it is just breathtaking. And this continues throughout the whole thing. All the, the key scenes when the, is, who's the herd of, is it the wildebeest? You run through the valley. When, spoiler alert, Mufasa dies, you know. You know, and they managed to do that, and then at the end, and oh, it's fantastic. And we got to the end of this performance, and they kind of, they finished with the big kind of end number, back to the circle, and way, and we got to the end, and there was that moment when it goes boom, and everything finishes, and the response from the audience, myself included, was instant. And what do we do? We leapt out of our seats we started clapping and cheering and saying, do you know what, that is, it was incredible what we'd seen. What we'd seen was just breathtaking theatre. The big respect to the, the performers and the directors and the lighting and the sound team, but it was stunning. And when you see something like that in the flesh and it is something that's good, there's something in us that makes us want to respond, respond in a positive way. And we'd seen just, it was a stage show. But it had been so good and we'd been so inspired and so thrilled by what we'd seen. Our instant response was to worship and to say, come on, that was amazing. We just think you were brilliant. And the fascinating thing with that is that if I'm telling you about it now, that's not your response. You're sitting and looking at me and going, you know, the pastor's gone a bit loopy. He's at a, he's at a theater kind of yelling at people on the stage. You're just doing a job. They're just actors, dancers, singers. 
But actually, when you see something in the flesh that is inspiring, you respond. And when you see something that is main, there's something in us that has to respond. And what we're going to look at today is about seeing and responding and worshipping. And the big idea of what I want to look at today is when you truly see Jesus, the only response is worship. If you truly see Jesus, the only response is worship. That's what we do. And if we track our line through Hebrews, we've gone kind of basically through Hebrews, through chapters 3, chapter 10, after the initial kind of outline about this is Jesus, the writer of Hebrews has set out a course basically saying Jesus is better, Jesus is better. He said he's a better priesthood, a better covenant, a better cleansing, a better sacrifice, all these things. We've looked through all of them in order. Then you get to the end of that section, chapter 11, and we look at uh, Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith, where he's basically saying, keep going. These are all the guys, the men and women of old, who kept going, following after Jesus, keeping their eyes on him through great hardships and trials and difficulties, but they wouldn't give up. Then you get to Hebrews chapter 12, those first two verses there, which are the, you know, the tea towel verses for Hebrews, the coffee cup verses, the ones that we know about keeping our eyes on Jesus, following after him. And many looks at them about we've got to look to Jesus. And then last week, might look at actually that even we do this, there's a discipline that comes and can be a suffering from that. And what we're going to look at now is that final kind of seeing Jesus by faith. So if you've got your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to read the back end of the chapter, starting at verse 9, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet, want more, yet, want, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful in receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, a couple of things I want to look at today. First one. Seeing isn't necessarily believing, but believing is seeing. Seeing isn't necessarily believing, but believing is seeing. This first section, there's basically two verses or two sentences in the original, and they, they, they're basically a sentence of contrasts. It contrasts the assembly of Israel at Mount Sinai after they have left Egypt Think the film, Prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments, depending on your age. 
uh, which one you can relate to, but that bit, they come out of ex, uh, the Egypt, Red Sea plagues, etc., etc., come to the mountain of the Lord. And then the, the other section is contrasting that with the new covenant, talking about another mountain, Mount Zion, which us as believers have come to in the city of the living God. And the physical phenomenon of, on Sinai is contrasted with spiritual realities in Christ. So that's what we've got. The first one. The physical did not produce faith. So we've got Israel, the nation of Israel, numbering possibly up to a million people have left Egypt. Pharaoh has said no. Moses says, let my people go. No, back and forth, plagues, etc. Finally they go. The army come out of them, sea, part the sea, through the sea. The army come in, it gets closed, they're wiped out. They're free now. They are there and they come to the wilderness to worship God, which is originally what God said to him when he appeared in the burning bush in the first place. That's what you're to do. Go get them, come to the wilderness, and they worship me. And you come to Mount Sinai. And what happens? The presence of God descends on the mountain. And it is a truly horrifying, terrifying ordeal for them that they are witnessing. I don't know if you've ever been on mountains, climbed mountains. On one hand, they can be beautiful and breathtaking. On the other hand, they can be utterly terrifying. We had a, an event, a men's event, a couple of years back, Man versus Mountain. We tend to do it every year. But one year, we climbed mountain in Wales called Triffin. Some of you guys were there. Ryan was, not it? Remember that? We remember that one, don't you? Yeah, just... We were going up Triffin, and it was good, and we were men, and we were fine, but then the cloud cover came in. Visibility dropped, the rain picked up, and what was suddenly a nice walk with a bunch of guys from the church got to the point of, do we call mountain rescue? We're literally having these conversations. It was like that, because exciting the cover, we couldn't see the summit, couldn't see the base. We were literally kind of hemmed in, and it suddenly became quite like uh-oh, uh-oh, what do we do? We all survived, you know, spoiler, but we did. But it was one of those, ask one of the guys if they were there what it was like, but it can be like that on the mountains, terrifying. And Israel were camped at the base of this mountain and the presence of God came on the top of the mountain and what did it say happen? You have the visual. Can you imagine this? Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest. Winds blowing, making this incredible sort of on the top of the mountain. It must be something that just makes you want to curl up into a ball and cry. There was the audible, there was the trumpet sounding. And it said the voice of God speaking. The mountains in the Bible are often places of revelation where God reveals himself, speaks to his people. And this was no different. The voice of God communicating to his people who he's brought out of slavery from Egypt. You are my people. I will be your God. And he speaks to them. It doesn't give the details of what that speaking was. What we do know was that it was terrifying. People are almost saying, stop talking. Have you ever had that with someone? Just stop talking. Just shh. We usually do it because people are being annoying, aren't we? You know, eh, eh. This isn't what happened with God. It's so terrifying. They're just saying, we cannot cope with what you're saying, God. And they're just saying, stop, stop. And he said, and also the holiness of God is manifested to the point where it says, the holiness of God, which means he's other, he's separate, he is pure. We aren't. We are the opposite of that. We are sinful. And he says, you can't come near the mountain because you cannot exist in my holiness. If you do, it'll kill you. And he says, even if an animal comes, even if an animal comes and touches the mountain, it must be killed because it's touched the holiness of God. So it's a, a truly horrifying thing. And then Moses himself, who Moses was known as a friend of God. That's one of the titles given to Moses. That's a good title to have. 
Even Moses, the leader of the people who met God at the burning bush, faced down Pharaoh, let my people go, said the plagues were going to come, led the people out, has seen this all. It says even he trembled with fear. Trembled with fear in this situation. But here's the fascinating thing, if we kind of track the story through. These people saw God manifested in his presence like no one had ever seen, if you follow the line timeline of the Bible, to that point. No one had ever had an experience on that scale, that number of people, and actually, probably not actually again, if you follow the rest of the Old Testament through. No one had had that experience of God. So they had literally seen it. The presence of God, the majesty of God, the awesome of God. But what was the result? They saw it all. They'd seen the plagues, they'd seen the part in the Red Sea. They had walked, they'd got their feet wet walking through the seabed with water stacked up either side. They'd come out, they'd seen it, they'd seen the giving of the law. And as we know, if you read the story through, you get a tragic outcome. That entire generation, by Joshua and Caleb, but that entire generation died in the desert. They never saw the promised land, which is where they were heading. They saw it all, but they didn't, it didn't affect them to the point where they had belief and they had faith. They all died in the desert. And if we go back to the previous section that Mike did, just before we kind of kicked into that chapter 12, it talked about Esau, one of the um, earlier kind of descendants in that family, brother of Jacob. It said that he was, he was similar in that line, that he, he had been an heir to this promise, this great promise that had been given to Abraham through Isaac. And actually it says he sold the whole lot for what? It's a bowl of stew. I mean, if I was picking a meal to sell everything for, it wouldn't be stew anyway. I mean, there are other choices, but still, stew. He was so focused on the here and now, he was so focused on there that he gave it all up for some food so he could eat because he was hungry. Very earthly, earthbound thinking. He wasn't looking ahead and describes Abraham, who was the original heir of that promise, as one who was looking for a city and a foundation that was God. It was beyond this world. And we've seen that through chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. And these people who would have seen God come down in power, it had no effect on their life. They saw it all, but it didn't actually affect them. But by contrast, it says, these were those, that was those people, that was the Israelites, there it says, actually, now there's a contrast. It says, but you have come, the writer says. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the Christians who he's writing to. He's talking to the church. And by implication, that's us as well. He says, but you have come to a different mountain. The Mount Sinai there. He says, now there is a different mountain. Mount Zion. He comes to it and he says a bunch of things about that. This is the mountain of the living God. And he says, Mount Zion is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There are seven things that he says about this thing. The first one, Mount Zion is a reference to uh, what the, the hill that David captured back in Samuel when he was there, 2 Samuel. And he, it became the resting place of the ark where ultimately the temple was built and that became David's city, which is the city of Jerusalem. And so this Mount Zion was a place where the presence of God was, but then it was used in the prophets to point forward to something else that was coming. Not a physical place, but actually there is a city of the living God that is coming that's going to be something different, bigger than beyond these earthly realities. Christ comes, and there's inauguration. He talks about his kingdom coming, and one day it will be wrapped up. And so this idea of Mount Zion is something beyond this earth, 
something bigger and deeper that they were heading for, the heavenly Jerusalem, it's described that. And it was a place where God's presence was. It was a place that people would be living for, that is God's presence. And he's saying to them, the readers, he's saying they came to this mountain, the presence was God on the mountain, it didn't seem to have effect, but you've come to a heavenly city, a heavenly Jerusalem. There is a spiritual reality that you've been born into as a Christian, that actually that's what you're a part of, and that's what you're looking forward to, that's what you're looking ahead for, that's what Abraham was. He wasn't looking for an earthly city, he was looking for one whose maker and builder was God, something beyond his life, which is what generated his faith to keep going in the face of all this adversity. The second thing it says is, what's this city like? Well, it describes it as innumerable angels in festival gathering. What's that about? Well, festival gathering, sometimes it translates joyful assembly, a little bit easier to get a hold of. This is a plate of life and joy and parting. The image that they would use in the the Roman culture at the time would be civic festivals, athletic competitions, often uh, returning generals from war have these triumphs through the cities where there would just be an atmosphere of celebration and enjoyment. So the city of God that you are being born into is a place of enjoyment and, and joy and worship and laughter, not a place of fear that we'd seen previously, and it stands in stark contrast with what the believers had at Sinai, a great celebration, a party, we might call it. That's what this place is like. So you've been born into this heavenly city. There is uh, angels, innumerable angels, so there's a lot of them partying. I don't know how angels party, but I can imagine it'd be quite entertaining to be a part of that, partying around in their best glad rags, festival gathering. And then it says, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. What's the assembly? Well, the assembly is just the congregation, the church. Of those words, the firstborn is a reference to us as believers that we are the firstborn of God in the sense that through what God has done through Christ, we have been born into that. We're part of this assembly. We're part of this joining of what God is doing in the earth. The angels there celebrating. One of the things they're celebrating is God's salvation in us. God has brought us into this great thing. And then there, obviously, there is, if it's God's city, there is him, the judge of all, that we must stand before one day. He is the great judge, and he will judge all mankind, regardless of whether they've made a profession of faith or not. Everyone gets to stand before the living God. The good news is the tone of this, and we know in Christ, what would be the outcome for us? Not guilty. It's a positive outcome. Not guilty because of what's gone in Christ. It says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What's that about? That's referenced back to Hebrews 11. All these men and women who've died in faith, that made perfect is there. The fact that through Christ, what Christ has done, there's nothing sufficient in their um, relationship with God. There's nothing sufficient in them because they have been made righteous. They now wear his clothes, wear his righteousness. All their sin has been dealt with. They're part of that because of Jesus' amazing sacrifice. And then finally, Jesus gets in on it. And it says to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The reason that there is joyful celebration and that we can be part of that, we can enter that, saints of Olkin enter that, is only because of one thing. Jesus. Because of a new covenant. He is mediated. He's the only one qualified to be fully God, fully man, to stand before a holy God, to be that sacrifice for our sins. And we now wear his righteousness. And only because of him can this happen. And even the last thing it says there, it says the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word, 
than the blood of Abel. When we looked at Jesus being a better cleansing, we talked about the Day of Atonement, the high priest. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would enter the most holy place where the presence of God is in the tabernacle, later in the temple, and he would bring the blood and he would sprinkle it on the ark. But that would have to be repeated every year because we saw that it just it wasn't effective. It didn't do what it, was, what it needed to do for us to come towards a holy God. And then we have the blood of Christ. Once for all. We've been sprinkled, we've been covered, we've been cleansed. We are now righteous before a holy God. Our sin has been dealt with completely. And because of that, it speaks a better word. The blood of Abel was a word, um, spoke of vengeance and judgment because if you go back and read in the beginning of Genesis, what happened to Abel? He was murdered by his brother, Cain. Taken out, premeditated murder. And there was a cry of vengeance for him. Judgment on the one who'd done it. But for us, the cry of Jesus' blood is one of reconciliation. Of bringing together. That has been, the wrath has been poured out on Christ so we do not have to see it. And what we see here is we've got the opposite. This one, believing is seeing. They saw everything, didn't believe. For us, we believe and therefore we see. We have this ultimate kind of end time vision that we are a part of, that we've been brought into by faith, where you have this heavenly city. And in it, you have innumerable agents who are worshipping and joyful and celebrating. You have saints who've gone before that we now are part of who are also in there worshipping and celebrating what God has done. You have God there, the judge, declaring us not guilty. You have Jesus as the great mediator of the covenant. Because of his shed blood, he still bears the miles of sacrifice. We can rejoice because we have been reconciled to God. It's an image that is repeated again when you look at the book of Revelation of what it's like at the end. That's where we're going. And Wheat says, if you go back to verse 22, a great point of faith is we have come to this mountain. It's not something that could happen in the future. It's something we're actually part of now. We are joined by faith as we believe we become part of that great joyful assembly. As we enjoy it and we worship along with them, we are part of that. And that's why through the back end of Hebrews we've just seen, it's always by faith, by faith, by faith. It said all through Hebrews 11. Then at the end it says, look to Jesus, beginning of Hebrews 12. And this is just a continuation of that thought. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep going. Keep focusing. Keep looking ahead. Choose to believe what the Word of God says about you. And in the end, we see by faith. The final section, unshakable kingdom, unshakable faith. Now, if you've been following through Hebrews, you get lots of exciting stuff. And then what happens periodically? You get a a warning. Something that just comes along and says, uh uh, okay, this is all really good, but take note. What does it say in verse 25? A little bit abrupt, a bit of a change of kind of um, direction. It says, See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape, reject from who warns from heaven. The point he's making is a summons to perseverance and faith and to keep going. He's contrasted what it was like on Sinai where they saw something. And ultimately, that generation died out. They never received their inheritance. They never received the promise. Tragic story. It says, you, as believers, have been brought into this great kingdom that's coming. This great end-time party, festival with the saints of old and and angels. And God is there. And it's a heavenly city. And it's going to be a a place of wonderful joy. There's going to be no more suffering and no more tears and no more crying and no more shame. And we will be with God forever. It's amazing. He says, so in light of what you're doing now is do not ignore it. 
Do not refuse it. Do not turn away from it. Do not treat it as, oh, it's just another one of those things, low priority, not important. This is vital for life. And he's bringing back his reading and saying, take note. We know the readers were under pressure for what they were doing. We've already come across that. We know they were facing troubles in their life. But we also know again and again the author is saying, keep going. Don't quit. God is speaking to you about your situation, about what's happened, and we should, we should stand firm in that. Because he said, there's something coming. There's something coming. And it says there is a shaking coming. I don't know if you've ever been to a fun fair and been to the kind of the shaking house or whatever they call it. Have you ever been to one of those things where you go in and, and you're staying there and you're with your friends, you're like, oh, this is fun. I've done this as I was a teenager with my mates. And then they start to shake the floor shakes. And that's the whole thing. And it's kind of, can you stand up? And everything starts to shake. And you start to grab the sides and the shaking increases. And what's first is a kind of what you might call a light shaking. And it starts to really ramp up. And I remember being in one of those things and my knees started to ache and I'm grabbing the sides. And it got to the point where it's like, I want this to stop now. I'm not feeling hard and confident anymore and like, yeah, I can do this. I was like, this needs to stop because everything starts shaking. And then you have that horrible experience when they finally stop it and you step off. Have you done that? And you step off and you're still doing this. Even though the ground is firm and you're grabbing onto each other because everything has been shaken. And I can imagine if you've ever actually been in a, an actual earth tremor, an earthquake, where actually it's not a game and it's not fun anymore and everything starts to shake it would be absolutely terrifying because when things start to shake, things that you think are solid and they start to shake, everything starts to fall apart. And he's saying there is a time coming when there's going to be a shaking. There's going to be a shaking and everything is going to get shaken. And only what is eternal, what is going to be of God, is going to last. The only thing that cannot be shaken will be his kingdom. That's what's going to last. That's why all the things that are temporary of this earth are going to fall away. And I don't know if you've kind of, if we reflect back over the last few years, I don't know if I'm just getting old or something, but I start kind of reflect, I am getting old, I know. But as I'm, I'm getting older, you start reflecting back and you see things in, your, in the world that are, are starting to shake and how unnerving it can be. Even in the last few years, We've had some major shakings in this earth. The first one was the, the financial crisis, they called it, where suddenly our banks and institutions got shake, shaken. Nations got shook. And suddenly you realize actually putting your trust and faith in money in them ultimately is going to come to nothing, isn't it? You know, there was that shaking. People suddenly got very afraid of what you thought was going to last. It wasn't. Famous, well-known banks disappeared like overnight. They were gone. Governments had to step in. They had to try and sort out what the problem was. Even in government, we've seen some shaking that kind of like wouldn't have expected. Not so long ago, we had a coalition government. The first time for decades, it seemed. And suddenly we've got a coalition. And it's like, oh, no one won the election. We didn't know what to do as a nation. It's like, what happens now? No one won. You've got to start making alliances and going together. And then we were going to have another election. Everyone said, well, there's going to have to be another coalition. There's going to be voting tactically. And then what happened? The Conservatives did a landslide. No one saw it coming. And you're saying, like, oh, they're in charge, which led to what? David Cameron had to come through on his promise, didn't he? We're going to have a straight up and down vote about the European Union. Oh, dear. 
that's fine, it'll, it'll be all right, that'll pass. What happened? Brexit. No one saw that coming, and everyone's suddenly like, oh my goodness, we're going to fall apart because we've got to leave the European Union. I think there's a, in a couple of days or something, there's a, it's going to be triggered, Article 50. Shaking, everything's shaking. And if it couldn't get any worse, the Americans thought we can do better than that, <laughs> didn't they? And it's like, it's getting, things are getting shaken. What you thought was kind of, that's fine. You can't put your trust and faith in that. You can't build all your kind of, your hope on that because it just doesn't work. And even on a personal level, we go through life and we think things are going well, but tragedy comes. The wind and the rain of life blow in on us. And if we built stuff on, on, on foundations that won't last, it will just get shaken and it will come down. And there's nothing, nothing in your life that cannot be shaken with a single phone call. I'm sorry, there's been a terrible accident. I'm sorry, the diagnosis is bad, it's malignant. We're downsizing, your services are no longer required. It all can get shaken. And there is a shaking coming saying that actually the things of this earth, the temporary, will be broken, will fall apart. They just won't stand up to it. But the good news is that there is something that is unshakable. There is something that can never be shaken. The things of God, the things of his kingdom. He will shake the earth and the heavens, it says. There's a quote there from the prophet Haggai. Referring to the kind of the coming, the judgment that will one day be poured out when the heavens and the earth will be shaken. And everything is going to be shaken. And the only things that will be left will be the things of God and the things of his kingdom. And it's a challenge, isn't it, if you read Corinthians about what are you going to build with? Are you going to build with just hay and stubble, the things of this earth that just gets burnt up in fire? Or are you going to build with precious uh, jewels and stones and silver and gold, things of God, things that will last and will survive the judgment? And it says at the end, there's a, a strong exhortation to finish. And it says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The reality is we're part of God's kingdom, which cannot be shaken. Things of this earth can, but the things of God can never be shaken. It will never fall apart, God's kingdom. It will only increase and grow and multiply till it is here in all its kind of um, glory, and we are part of it forever. And I don't know how you kind of view your faith and growing in faith and, and walking with faith. And we, we try to walk by faith and we try to have trust and faith in God. But if you're anything like me, you kind of go through the ups and downs of life. Sometimes things are going well and good and sometimes you get hit from the side of the things that just kind of knock you down. You're under pressure. Things are going, we've faced it over the last few years, just starting the church and seeing it growing and, and kind of what's happening. We felt our pressure in so many areas of life in terms of family and finances and, and just loneliness. And, and God, what are you called to? It's questioners. And there's been pressure after pressure after pressure. And your life is, is like that. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you look at your faith and think, God, have I got the faith to get it, to, get, to, to keep going? Am I, am I going to be able to keep persevering to the end as you've commanded? But the wonderful thing is you're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You worry about, is my faith going to last? Well, what's it built on? It's built on an unshakable foundation. It's not about you. It's about him. And the question is, Jesus, are you going to carry me through? And the question is, Jesus, can you carry me through? And what's the answer? Yes, 
Yes, he is, because his kingdom is unshakable. It doesn't matter what comes your way. It doesn't matter what hits you in life, because the one holding you is the one who rules the heavens and the earth. The one that when the shaking comes, he's the one doing it to show what will last. Whether your faith, you think your faith is big, you think your faith is full, it doesn't matter. It's built on an unshakable foundation. You are part of an unshakable kingdom. And what God has begun in you, he will continue to the end. He will continue to the end. And that is a source of joy. That is a source of comfort. When you look at why are they worshipping, why are they having a joyful assembly, that is why. Because there is a king who is over it all. So let's just finish with a few things. Application to to wrap up at the end. It says there, verse 29, it says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. As believers, we should be the most grateful people in the world. We should be the most thankful, grateful people in the world. Why is that? Well, if you go back to look at verses kind of 20 through 22, 23, 24, it says that. Why? Because you've been brought into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You are part of the assembly of the firstborn. You have been declared not guilty by the judge of heaven and earth. We have Jesus as the mediator of the covenant that we are now part of. Covenant is just agreement. And because of that, we bear his righteousness. We can stand before a holy God and make demands of him. We've always seen that in Hebrews. We are righteous and holy. We have been forgiven it is an amazing thing. We're going to join with the angels in celebration and the saints of old. We've been reconciled to God. And so when judgment comes, we know that we will stand before that judge and we will have Jesus as our advocate, the one who speaks on our behalf. And they are things to be incredibly joyful of. And what we find out, what we, what we tend to do when we're grateful is we tend to go to, to things that are immediate and obvious in our gratitude, which is not a bad thing, but actually let's put it in some perspective this morning. We tend to say, if you, if you said to me, well, God, what are you thankful for, Stuart? Well, I'd probably think, well, I'm thankful for my wife and I'm thankful for my children and uh, my home and the food on the table and kind of the country I live in that's you know, relatively safe and secure. Um, kind of there's a freedom of religion here. I'm grateful for the church and some of you guys. Um, sorry. Just checking you're listening. Obviously all of you or, or not. Um, no, I was checking and, and just I, I, you think about those things. But the reality is that those things, as good as they are, and as wonderful they are and joyful, they can all be taken away. All of them can be taken away in a moment. Every single one of them can be removed from my life one after the other. It would be a really bad day, but it could happen. Okay? And actually it's good to be grateful for them, but there are things in our life that can never be taken away. And our gratitude and our thankfulness should start there. Our gratitude and our thankfulness should start with the things of God that can never be taken from us. And we'll get round to those other things. They're wonderful gifts that God brings to our life. Friendship and the church and all the things he gives us. But they should start first and foremost with what he's done in our life. That we were sinners. We were far from God. It says we were objects of wrath. We were under his judgment rightly because we were God-belittling rebels who hated him and everything he stood for. We didn't want him in our life. We didn't want anything to do with him. Stuff you, God, even though you created everything. And out of that, he pulled us. 
He saved us when we were running headlong into hell. He said, I will have him. I will have her and I will save them. I will die on a cross them when they don't care about me. I will rise from death and then I will call them from death to life. And I will bring them into my kingdom. And I will forgive them. I'll cause them to be born again. And I will be their father and they will be my son. They'll be adopted into my family. And I will love them and I will give them a plan and a purpose, a part of my eternal kingdom. And they will spend eternity with me delving the riches of my grace and my mercy. That's what's going on. That's where we start. And I will bring them into a family. We'll call it the church. And they will be part of that. And they will live out that in their life. And they will celebrate me. And that's where we start with our gratitude. That's where we start with our gratitude. And we can get on to the other things, but that's where we begin. And I want to challenge you this week. If you've got your Bible, go back to those verses, 22, 23, 24. I want to challenge you this week to open your Bible every day. Just go and look at those verses from Hebrews 12 and start with a prayer of praise and gratitude for God for what he's done based on those. Based on him as being the mediator of this new covenant, that we are covered with that blood which makes us clean before him, that we're part of this joyful assembly, that we've come to this heavenly city which is just incredible. And let that be the gratitude that frames your day on something that cannot be shaken. Because it doesn't matter what happens that day. Good day at work, bad day at work, good day with the kids, bad day with the kids. You, you just, we don't know what's coming. But actually, if you start with that, it cannot be shaken. And that will probably lead to gratitude for the other things. Because once you get going, you're usually on a roll. And you can thank God for everything your day and be a grateful people. Next one. Acceptable worship. It's interesting that it says it's acceptable worship. What does the implication of that mean? Some worship isn't acceptable. You know, that's, just, that's what he's saying. So there's acceptable worship. There's not acceptable. What's not acceptable worship? Well, there's presumptuous worship. We'll look at that next. But there's also acceptable worship if you are, know you're actively involved in something that would dishonor God. Sin, we call that. The Bible calls things. Things that are an offense to a holy God. It makes you a hypocrite. You're saying one thing, but you're doing it. Yeah, I worship you, I do it. but actually you're doing, you're thinking, you're involved in something that is contrary to God. Melanie particularly touched on this a couple of weeks ago when she did that first bit, Hebrews 12. But I just want to just circle back round because two weeks have passed and we've had plenty of time to get involved in all sorts of things in that period. <laughs> and I want to challenge you today, if you're a guest here, if you're, you know, you're a regular here, are there things in your life that God is pressing on that you need to get deal with? This bit's quite easy because you're thinking about it now. And if you're thinking about it, then that's it. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is wonderful at just convicting and bringing things to the surface. How we deal with that is easy as well. We repent, we turn away from our sins. We seek God and we say, God, forgive me for that. And then we choose to walk in righteousness. And you can do that yourself. You can grab someone to help you. It's good to just confess it to someone. The Bible says confess our sins to one another. Just to say, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm going to pray. Help me with that. Stand alongside me. Know it. Do that. Because we want our worship to be acceptable to him. So if there's things today we're going to worship out the back of this and sing, just get right with God. Take a moment. It doesn't have to take long. You don't have to beat yourself up to kind of earn God's forgiveness. He's already given it to you. Okay? You just need to appropriate it by faith. The last one, reverence, or reverence and awe, it says in the passage. Have you ever been to a place and been filled with awe, just been like bowled over at something? Going back to those mountains, I enjoy going to the mountains, and just because when you stand at the bottom, you suddenly 
things get put in perspective and you'll suddenly realize I'm this big and that is huge. Millions upon millions of tons of rock is just towering above me. It could crush me like a bug and no one would know. It's been there before I came and it'll be there long after I'm gone. Or in those places. You might even find it if you... Um, I, used to, I grew up by the coast um, down near Brighton and there were times when the sea was pretty rough and bad and the promenade at the front and the waves would be hitting the promenade and coming over and because of where the road was sometimes the waves hit the promenade and the seawall and it would come over and hit the car and I remember driving on the car or being with mum down there, and the waves were coming over and hitting the car and you're suddenly awe at the power of the sea and what it can do it can be breathtaking and kind of realize that this is way beyond me feel for the individuals who are out on the boats. Even buildings can do it. When I was a teacher, taught in a church school, and every year we had a, uh, a church school day where all the church schools from the diocese came together, and the cathedral, it was in Ely, uh, just kind of outside Cambridge, and we went to the cathedral. And the, the, the cathedral was known for something called the octagon, which was a tower that was huge. It was octagonal in shape. And you'd go into the cathedral, and you'd look up, and it was stunning that this thing was hundreds of years, how they built it hundreds of years ago is just beyond me. But men with tools and, you know, built this thing that took lifetimes to build and were going where with the little kids and would stand and stare up at the octagon and it was just stunning. I just felt kind of, I felt that sense of awe. And the thing is with us, with God, what we can tend to do just to make God manageable in our mind is we tend to try and reduce him to something we can understand reduce him down to things we can grab hold of just so we can relate to him but actually God is bigger and greater than that God is terrifying in his power and his majesty he is incredible in who he is and what he knows and actually if we're going to come before this holy God we need to have a level of reverence and awe because it describes him as a consuming fire this kind of burning mass of holiness that we come and stand before. And we don't have to come in fear because we have Christ. But at the same time, we can't belittle him and put him in our little box and he becomes our God genie or our kind of, you know, Pokemon that we pull out when we need. Jesus, I choose you. Solve this problem. No, he's bigger than that. He's vast than I just want to recommend a book to you. I finished it this week and I found it fascinating with you but um, it's called None Like You by a lady named Jen Wilkin. I'll put the link out in the email so you can have a read. And what she's written is, is it's a short book and it's got about 10 chapters and what it, what it does is it dwells on the attributes of God's character he doesn't share with us that make him different with us. Uh, theologians call it the incommunicable attributes of God. Things about God that he doesn't share with us that makes him different. We like to focus on things that we can kind of understand. Loving, kind, merciful, gracious, forgiving. They're communicable things. They're things that we can grasp, we can share with him. The things, there are things outside him that you can't. And if you read them and you think about them, it suddenly reminds you how big his, our God is. And these are the, the, some of the, the chapters that covers in the book are it's, he's infinite, he's incomprehensible, which means unknowable, self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, immutable, which means unchanging, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and sovereign. And if we dwell on those areas, I've read it over the last couple of weeks. I've read a chapter a day just to kind of recalibrate my mind in who this God is. And I found it breathtaking to actually look at God again and say, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are beyond us in so many ways. You are eternal, which means you have no beginning and have no end. But not only do you have no beginning and end, you exist at all points in time equally. 
you can see all time laid out of you all at the same time and you exist fully in every single moment of time. That means also, because he's eternal, it means he's all-knowing. It means he knows every point of every information. He never has to recall anything. God just knows instantly. We have to think, how old are you? And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I have to bring stuff to mind. He doesn't. He just knows stuff. He is sovereign, which means he, he rules everything with ultimate power and authority over it all. He never changes at all. You all change all the time. Just look in the mirror. Scary, isn't it, sometimes? Who is that old dude in the mirror? Oh, that's me. You know? Get some of your old photos out. Look at the fashion sense. You change. God doesn't change. He doesn't change. And so we are to come with him with reverence and awe. So I recommended that book to you. Have a look at that. Read some of those passages in Scripture where it just reminds us of who our God is. I think I'm, I'm just in, I'm close to rabbiting now. So do you want to stand up? Do you want to stand up? I'm going to pray. Can the band come back up? We're going to spend some time worshipping our wonderful Saviour. Do you want to just close your eyes? I'm just going to pray. And hopefully I'm going to earth some of the things that we've said today. And I, I pray that something that's has kind of... Something has kind of connected, has gone in with you, and you, you can kind of feel that God has laid something on you. I remember when I think about preaching, I pr- my prayer is, God, if, if people can leave knowing you kind of 1% better in their life, loving you 1% more, then I feel like I've achieved something. I've achieved something. And I pray, that's my prayer today, that something that's gone on from the Word of God has hit your life and just changed it. Your, your vision of God has got that much sharper. Your love for Jesus has just got that much fuller, stronger. I'm just going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and kind of seal some things in our hearts today. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are an amazing God. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are the one who makes all this possible. Lord, we thank you at that vision that the writer of the Hebrews said, you are the one at the center of it all that mediator of the new covenant whose blood enables it all to happen, us to come and be part of that joyful assembly. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you and praise you for that, Lord God. And I pray, God, I ask today that you would put that sense of gratitude in our heart for all that you've done today, all that you've done, that we would be a people that are, that we're just like, God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom. Thank you for just, yeah, changing us around, Lord Jesus. Lord God, if there's anything in our hearts that we know we need to deal with, sinful attitudes and actions, things we've done, things we thought, Lord God, we pray, God, I pray you give us grace to repent even now, just to put that right. Sorry, God, deal with it, put it right. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would give us that sense of reverence and awe in who you are. You say, come to me, come to me, come to me, that's your cry. And we want to come. We want to come willing. But let us remember who we're coming to. A wonderful, beautiful Savior. But he's also the eternal holy God over all things. And Lord God, we thank you that we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. (laughs) Our foundation is on you and it is unshakable. Lord, we thank you that what you start in us, you will carry on to completion in the end. We love you and we praise you. And God's people said... Amen.